0: They are just rough drafts, a glimpse of what is to come because God is still at work writing plot twists, introducing new characters, and bringing good even from the most challenging circumstances. Join us as we see what God is up to in our stories. Here's your host, Matthew Hyatt. I'm your host today, Matthew Hyatt, and this isn't just any episode. It is the first and as of yet the only We'll see if it stays that way, and uh, see if anyone listens to it. So congratulations, you might be the first listener this podcast has ever had. You might be the only listener this podcast has ever had. Thank you, Mom. Either way, uh, I think we're going to have a good time together. Before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit more about what we're going to try to do. Uh, when I read the Bible, I notice time and time again, Jesus says to people, go tell your story. It happened in Luke 7, 22. He told John's disciples to go and tell what you've seen and heard. Uh, Luke started his gospel by saying he's just trying to put together an organized account of all the Jesus stories he'd ever heard. Psalm 102, 18 is really good. It says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So that's the idea, but we're behind what we're trying to do here on the backstory. We are literally recording our stories about God for a generation to come. Hey church, you hear too much from me. Uh, And I think what's really important is that we make time for each other's stories. Uh, Sometimes we've been afraid of what's going to happen if we tell them. What will somebody think? Sometimes we just don't know how or where or when. So that's what this is all about. This is a place where we can tell stories. Um, Every story is going to be a little bit different. Uh, You'll hear some of my stories and you'll say, I wouldn't have done it that way. And you'd probably be right. Right. Uh, But this is just about us spending some time together. So in each episode, a friend is going to join me to tell a story. And today, I'm very excited to introduce our very first guest, the inaugural, amazing, wonderful. She uh, reads voraciously and she thinks deeply. She is a seeker, which is a word that I love a whole lot. She has an amazing family. I'm really glad that I get to know her. Debbie Martin, thank you for coming today. Thank you, Matthew. How much do you hate me?
1: Well... Not too much.
0: <laughs> More or less than, than when we hit the record button. Less. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow.
1: Wow. No, we just, we're just just going to get through it. <laughs>
0: yeah, we are. We don't know what we're doing, do we? No, we don't. So the idea was, tell us your God story. And I don't know where you want to start, but it's yours.
1: All right. Well, let's start at the beginning. It's a good place I, to start. Yes. Um, my parents were both born in Oklahoma, as was I. Uh, My mother's family migrated to Texas. Um, Growing up, uh, we moved periodically between her family and my father's, but mostly we lived near my father's family. Um, They married very young. Uh, My father was 17. My mother was 16. And as I look back on this time, one of the things that I try to think about when I think about the things in the course of events that have happened in my life is that in 1950, times were different. My father noticed. (laughs) My father grew up with the idea that the little woman stayed at home and cooked and kept house and mostly kept her mouth shut, which um, did not, was not the same view my mother shared. (laughs) Um, they both were musicians, very talented people. Um, what they play? Well, my father played multiple instruments. He, he played guitar and banjo and mandolin and fiddle and was a decent singer. And my mother was a good singer and was a good rhythm guitar to his lead. And um, they played barn dances and church socials and uh, square dances and... Fourth of July is on the back of a flatbed truck, and yeah, so those were among the better memories that I have of that time period. Play? Do you play? I can chord some on the guitar, but that's it. I don't play well. And I can sing. I've sat near you in church. I know that. You You know, know. Uh, David and Jack have have picked, or you know, have uh, inherited that ability to pick up instruments and just go with it. You know, so...
0: I can barely play a record. <laughs> it's sad.
1: <laughs> well, music is a very, very big part of our life, and not just one genre. Just good music is just... Uh, speaks to my soul. You know, it says what I can't sometimes. Yeah. So that's very, very big.
0: So that was a big part of your childhood. It was a good part, you said.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were married 14 years, and they... uh <laughs> if they had an argument that usually meant someone was leaving. <laughs> and so it was kind of a revolving door during that period of time until they finally just decided that that was it and they weren't going to make it. Um, after that time, I was 11 when that happened. We moved from the small town we lived in, my mother and my sister, who was um, six years younger than me, so she was just barely in kindergarten. Um, moved to the city and um, we lived there for about a year before um, my mother decided that she wanted to move to Memphis, Tennessee. So that meant leaving all extended family that we have, and to my recollection, we never ever lived near extended family for any period of time more than a few months after that. So That was not only just a separation from what was familiar, but it was a separation from our grandparents and, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins that we had been around. So that was, that was difficult. During that time, from the seventh grade to the ninth grade, we lived in four states and we went to 12 schools.
0: Twelve schools between seventh grade and ninth grade.
1: Through the end of the ninth grade. What was that like? We learned to be the new girl. (laughs) Um, it was very, I have always been, uh, a child as a child, one that could entertain myself, you know, I would always love to read and I could just spend hours by myself with music or with books or with coloring or whatever, but I always was a introverted child. And so being in this situation where you had all these different experiences, Um, it just enhanced that, you know, you just learn not to make friendships because you know that those things are not going to last. And you become very self-reliant, you know.
0: I mean, just hearing that, it makes me think there are two sides of that coin. On one hand, I mean, talk about a recipe for somebody who's going to be able to take care of themselves and be okay in their own company, which are important skills. Uh, But on the other hand, talk about something that's going to sabotage relationships. Um,
1: wow. It's, okay. it's true. I, I don't mean to interrupt Oh, no, <laughs> it's fine. It's true. Um, after two years, um, it, my mother remarried. After two years after the divorce, she remarried. And um, that was, I I was 13 at the time. It was not a good time for me. And <laughs> To say we didn't get along very well during that period of time is pretty much an understatement. Um but at the in the ninth grade, there was a hurricane that was coming into Texas where we currently lived at the time, and we moved back to Memphis. and uh, I never I never left Tennessee again after that point. Um, those days were. Those would have been challenging days as a, as a teenager anyway, but they were, they were very, um, challenging days to navigate because you have all of the hormonal things that happen to you as a, as a young girl and you have, um, resentments that happen, um, unfairly, you know, toward a stepfather, you know, when you, really always i think at the back of your mind always hope that your parents will reunite you know i think that's uh, a dream that a lot of children have from divorced parents um so you know i was i made his life miserable <laughs> as well <laughs> um and that makes sense yeah um so we we did uh, settle down in memphis and um during that time, I think I was 15, my uh, stepfather worked at a meat market and uh, then later at a grocery store. And that's where I met Earl. He was a checker at the grocery store. Really? Yes. And uh,
0: So what did you do? Uh, no, that was your grandfather's store. Sorry. I just.
1: No, no. It was just a, a store, a grocery where my stepfather worked. Your stepfather worked at that store because mm-hmm. your stepfather worked there. We were there and met him. And uh,
0: what'd you notice about Earl first? Oh, <laughs>
1: well, he was cute. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Well, don't let him hear this, he'll get a big head. You know? well, he knows, <laughs> <laughs> he knows. <laughs> I love Earl.
1: <laughs> he, he was quite a handsome young man, he said, and he was he said, so wise, Debbie. Well, okay, he's just not young, he's still handsome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you said something to me the other day about Earl that I just loved, and I thought about it every time I've seen him. You just said. I've never known someone so consistent.
1: That's exactly right. He is who he is. He doesn't have any facades. When you see him, he's the same today as he was yesterday. And he has a servant's heart. He just thinks of things that I never would think of. You know, that's his love language for sure.
0: And you describe your childhood. I mean, moving to 47 schools in the sixth grade alone. I don't think I got that number quite right. But uh, being with someone who is consistent must have been a real blessing and change.
1: It was, and he was—he <clears throat> came from a consistent family, and you know, it's like that. In, that attraction was just the whole thing because you know he was funny and lighthearted and um, stable and all of those things, attentive. You know, things that just this young girl was craving. You know, <laughs> so yes, we we became a thing. So how old were you when you and Earl met? I was 15 when we met, and we married um, just after my 17th birthday.
0: All right, Caleb, Katie, if you're listening to this ever, I want you to understand that that's (laughs) that's actually illegal now, and you can't do that.
1: My marriage license actually says 16. My mother had to sign. She was moving back to Texas, and she um, left me there for that period of time before we married with a friend and then later Earl rented an apartment and I moved into that apartment until we got married.
0: You know, so as the the trend now is that marriage is getting delayed longer and longer and longer. You know, the average age of a first marriage is now like twenty nine or thirty, if I remember correctly. I mean it's it's been creeping up. So you talked about how the world's changed since the fifties.
1: In nineteen seventy it was different too. <laughs> yeah, you know. Big time. Yes, big it time. was. Um, you know, we married on a Friday afternoon and he went back to work on Monday and I went to school.
0: (laughs) My brain exploded (laughs) because I, and I don't know, maybe I'm just, maybe this is me being young and dumb. I just, we were so stupid at 15 and I cannot imagine being married and not getting murdered or be or doing murdering. (laughs)
1: Um, well, we had some real arguments.
0: <laughs> it got close a time or two, <laughs> you know, just to to go to school. And anywho, that yes. that's just my brain has trouble with that.
1: Yes, it was. It was um, just to emphasize that whole period of time and how different it was. I did well in school. I was in cosmetology. I was in a, a vocational high school. as it was uh, for the city of Memphis called Memphis Technical. And that's where I was at, and um, I was not on a career track to go to college, but rather to go to trade school. So I w- had planned to go and stay through the twelfth grade and finish school there. The, <laughs> during that period of time, your choices as a woman were so limited. You, you could be a secretary, you could be a nurse, you could maybe you could be a doctor, but most of the time you were a nurse, uh, a teacher. You know there were just professions that were uh common for women, yeah. And I can remember uh going to my guidance counselor and to the principal. Um, once I was married, uh, in April before the end of the 11th grade, um, they pulled me out of all of my extracurricular activities. I was no longer prohibited to be in the beta club or to be in any of the clubs that were that I had been a participant in I was pulled out of those and he uh, as you were married because i was married and then the um principal and the guidance counselor said well really probably you just need to go ahead and quit and finish up your 500 hours that you need in a cosmetology school and just exit high school as a as a total totally so that's, that's what the i dropped out i did drop out mhm That's what they told me to do.
0: Well, they don't give that advice anymore, do they? Mm
1: -mm. So I spent that summer uh, in cosmetology school. I got my license. I walked into the Memphis Board of Education in the fall of the year that I turned 18 and took the GED test cold and got my GED. And of course, you You passed it the first time. I did. I passed it the first (laughs) time. (laughs) I knew you did. So, um, but that's always been a disappointment for me. You know, I, I just think what uh if you if you think things have not changed for women that's one of the areas that they have you know i mean there were girls that were expecting that were right along beside me and not married that were in those classes and in those clubs but you know it just wasn't fair
0: yeah i have not i i mean obviously when i was born and being a guy this is not a thought that my grandparents were married she was 14 and he was 18 um they were in East Tennessee, but for some reason Memphis feels like such a different world to that to me. Mm-hmm. And you feel like a different era than that. that mm-hmm. it... So um tell me what it was like those early years. What's what's the story?
1: Um, well I um quickly decided that cosmetology probably was not for me. I didn't like working every Saturday for (laughs) walk-ins. So I I decided that I was going to try to get a job. Uh, Someone told me about a job at Sharing Plow uh, in the mailroom, and so I went to apply for that job, and they made us take aptitude tests, and they said, oh, no, no. We think you'd be better suited in our accounts receivable department. So I... Started to work in the accounts receivable for Maybelline. So really, I that's that was my first quote unquote real job. A grown it's, up job. Yeah, and that put me um, that put me on a course in my career into the accounting bookkeeping side. So all of my experience was just on the job experience. I had no formal training in that, but took to it well. Yeah, and um, so I worked that job until. Um, time for Daryl to be born. He was born three years after we got married and um, he had health issues uh, when he was born and then David was born three years later and he had health issues. So I was able to stay at home with them until until they started school. Earl worked um, as a plumber and he worked very long and very hard he worked numerous hours, I mean all kinds of hours, to uh, make that happen. So um, that's what we did, and um, during that time frame, <laughs> I decided that we just need to move back to the land. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one day I'd gone to pick him up from work. We had a nice little brick bungalow that we lived in in Memphis, and I'd gone to pick him up at a job site. And there was this two-story clabbered house that was there uh, that was up on skids because it needed to be moved for the new target that they were putting in in that area. And it could be yours for $1. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh.
0: I like where this is going.
1: So I was like, Earl, we need to do this. (laughs) And we lived, we had bought five acres um, outside of Memphis in a little town called Oakland. And it was and when I say unimproved, we we saw that little bungalow and we moved into a trailer that we had a bulldozer come and just clear a path for us to set this thing. So it was definitely unapproved. Yeah. And we had done work on that to, uh, you know, to make it (laughs) inhabitable.
0: Okay, so back up a little. And if this is too too personal, too direct, just for uh, context for people, what's a house selling for in the area that you bought this house for a dollar?
1: Well, like now or no, or no. Ju- then, yeah, yeah, at well, that time, what should a house have cost you then? Or
0: yeah. what'd you sell your bungalow it, for?
1: Well, we sold our bungalow for um, for thirty two for thirty two thousand. Thirty two thousand. So. Yeah, we paid twenty and we sold it for thirty two. Okay. Yeah, and uh,
0: <laughs> this is the second part where all of our listeners in my generation had a stroke because <laughs> most of them were driving trucks that cost more than houses. Oh, and, yes. You know, but even yes. even then, a dollar is insane. Now I know it cost a fortune to move it, I'm sure.
1: Well, it cost six thousand dollars to move it. Okay. But, so they had they had put a movie the people who had jacked it up and put it on skids had a sign of who you know it was in charge. So so what they had to do is they had because it was tall, it was like a tall skinny, they had to collapse the roof on it so it really just looked like a square box, two story box that was moving. But it had to move. If anybody is familiar with Memphis at all, Stage Road, um, Covington Pike, all through that is a very populated area. And they had a little man that sit on the top and he would raise the light uh, wires through every intersection. And it just barely cleared the um, intersection of Interstate 40, the concrete bridge. And then it moved 30 miles out to our little unimproved five acre track, cool as that. <laughs> How cool is that? So um, it was there six weeks, Earl, still working this plumbing job and us doing all we could do. Um, Went to the bank, borrowed $10,000 and said, I think we could do it for this. And the local banker there just put it on a signature note and let us borrow that $10,000. And so we lived there, you know, and sold it for, uh, we sold it in 1985. Five or six, I guess, for 40-something.
0: 40, 40 so you did okay on that transaction.
1: So we did fine. Yeah, we did fine on that. And
0: yeah. it sounds like a great place to live, too.
1: It was good for the children. Uh, I later went to work for uh, a factory there, a ring can. Um, we heated with wood, and I took a part-time job um, for their seasonal end-of-the-year work um, so that Earl didn't have to cut wood that, that year. I said, well, if you, if I take this job we can we can um buy wood and you won't have to cut wood this year. And so I took that job and then they were like, well, we'd like for you to stay. And so that put me that was my second course of of career. I stayed there for six or seven more years. There was a small church there that we were um, active in we developed some really close and good friendships while we were there.
0: Okay, before you go there, let's let's go backwards just a little bit. Tell me about the faith journey through through the story so far because I'm making some assumptions here, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming that if you moved uh, 172 times in the second week of second grade, it's pretty hard to put down roots with a church or um, in what was what was faith and religion like even when you were growing up?
1: Well, when I was growing up, my my uh, background would have been the Baptist church. Um, I, during the time that we lived in the small town, I went with my grandmother and with other relatives that were there. Um, my parents were both—they uh, both believed in God um, and wanted us to have spiritual training, but they were inconsistent in their own attendance, obviously due to— <laughs> all of the issues that they had going on in their own life. Um so then when we moved and we moved to Memphis, um, the first time when it was just my mother and my sister and I, um, we my sister and I sometimes walked to this little church. Well, it wasn't a little church, it actually became Bellevue Baptist Church. Oh yeah. And um and we went there until we began that journey of moving all those periods of time. So during those times, we were very disconnected. Sometimes if we were there for any length of time, we would, um, mom would take us and drop us off for us to go to Sunday school. But for the most part, we were not connected to a church. When we moved to Memphis, uh, we rented, and there was a woman that as she rented, her first uh, question was, do you have a church affiliation or do you have a church home? And so she invited us to to go there. She came for my sister and I every Sunday. Uh, uh, She was probably, I don't know, maybe 60 or 65 at the time. And she just was the epitome of a southern lady. She just in every way was just a very kind and loving person. And she would pick us up. And my mother and my stepfather did uh, eventually start coming there and, and committed to that church congregation as well. She was consistent for me throughout um, my years of motherhood. I would say maybe she was a, a strong influence. She, um, when Earl and I said we were going to get married, she planned a shower for us. She planned uh, flowers and, and helped us plan a wedding. She was instrumental in all that. When the children were born, she had showers for the, for the boys and for the babies. And she stayed uh, through her, into her nineties. Even when we moved away from there, she wrote and did encouragement and uh, was just truly the, Arms and feet of Jesus in that case. So she is a very strong influence in my life.
0: Again, I just want to make sure I heard you right. She was the landlord. She was the landlord. You know, somebody who had no... She
1: called us tenants. (laughs) Tenants.
0: (laughs) No reason to... You know, nobody's making her do this. Mm -hmm. But she really invested in you and Earl and your faith. She did. And not just your faith, your, your life if I hear you right.
1: That's right. And she did for my mother as well. My mother loved her very much as well. Um, And she tried. I mean, I know she faithfully prayed for us. There is no doubt in my mind that she did. And um, I later wrote her a letter and told her that I attributed being a Christian to her. You know, uh, you know, and it's not that, you know, sometimes I look back on this and I think, oh, my mom and dad, they made these mistakes and yada, yada, yada. But the long and short of it is, is that they didn't have the resources available to them that we have today. They didn't have such a thing as counselors. Marriage troubles was something that was kept behind closed doors. You didn't publicize that. You um, you didn't have books to read. You didn't really even have confidants in the same way that we do now that could give you godly counsel, or at least if if those were available, they they didn't know yeah. that they were available. So I have learned to look at them through the filter of, I think they did the best they could. They were both from large families. They didn't, my dad had, there were seven in his, and there were eight in my mother's. Um, they. I never doubted that they loved us. Now, my father was absent in my life for a pretty good period of time and maybe i wondered a little during that yeah but in later years we've had that conversation and i knew that he did love us um
0: well debbie that
1: and that's big
0: that's huge and your decision to look at them through the lens of um grace and optimism giving them the benefit of the doubt i think that saves you from bitterness and second guessing and um you know, you and I both like to read, and Brene Brown, uh, she she wrote Daring Greatly, The Power of Vulnerability, uh, some really cool stuff. Um, in one of her books, she talked about how much better your life will be, and she used the exact same phrase you just used. If when you think of the people who, who hurt you or did you wrong or irritate you, if you adopt as a mantra, they're doing the best they can. Um, and that doesn't mean that what they're doing is okay that's right and it doesn't mean that what they're doing is helpful or right or any of that stuff but um they're doing they did what they knew
1: and surviving <laughs> yeah particularly for my mother with no child support you know surviving can cause you to make decisions and lead you down life paths that you you might know are not the best ones, but maybe they're the only ones that are available to you. Something
0: you can see today, and where would I have been if I'd been her shoes? Mm-hmm. You
1: know. She was not um, educated. She had no trade, but she had an entrepreneur spirit. She, um, she was a risk taker, and in, in some ways she's way braver than I would ever be. So can I ask you, and
0: sure. there may not be an answer to this, how did you get to the place where you learned to say she did the best she could? Um, was that a, a slow realization? Was that some work that got you there? Was-
1: it was some work that got me there. I actually went to a 12-step program, and that was part of digging into all of that and breaking it down and, and learning to forgive. So it was a part of a 12-step program for me um, for Overeaters Anonymous. Wow. So
0: Man, I, I wish more Christians understood the power in those 12 steps mm-hmm. because, I mean, admitting that I'm powerless, uh, making amends, there's just so much in that. that's just Bible with a different name. It, it's the stuff in the Bible that we don't generally practice. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our Catholic friends have the phone booth where they make confession. And, you know, sometimes we sneer at them and say, you don't have to confess to a priest. And what we do is we just don't confess to anybody. <laughs> you know, uh, I'd take the phone booth over nothing any day and having the people that you can really uh be vulnerable with be honest with tell the truth to okay i'm talking too much this is story sorry that's okay okay. shut up
1: well to go back to to mine and earl's life what it was like during those years in oakland um we had left this church that we were connected to in memphis and moved to this small town and um under a hundred members there. So not being active was really not an option.
0: (laughs) Small churches will do that. too.
1: You know, you just, you became engaged. And um, I had made the decision early on when my children were born that I wanted them to have roots and I wanted them to have a spiritual background um, to hopefully avoid some of the things that had happened to me. And to try to break the cycle of dysfunction that that we had grown up with. And I felt like that the connection between breaking that cycle was spiritual, that that's where it was at. And so that was a priority for me, was to go and to, and to be um, all that I felt I could be at that place in my life uh, for them and later for me. Um, so... Earl had worked all these years as a plumber, and I think he was 36 at the time, and he had no benefits, no vacation. He's just like construction work still is. It's like no work, no pay. That's just the way it was. And uh, times were difficult for us you know, during that period. And so he had wanted to get a job with benefits, and so we had gone to Montgomery Bill on vacation. Uh, one year, and he stopped in, always wanted to be a part of the forestry division and stopped in, and they said yes, that they had an opening for a forester, but he needed to go downtown and make application for that, and he did, and he was hired for that. So that meant a move for us. So um, Daryl was in seventh grade, Daryl and uh, David was in the fourth, and we moved up here and you had to live at the time you had to live at the fire tower which we did and (laughs) it sounds real um romantic kind of exciting to think about living at the fire tower we lived in this little 1,000 square foot house and um
0: no is that here at Montgomery Bell
1: it we're actually at Kingston Springs Oh, okay yeah that's where that's where he was at was Mm -hmm. at Kingston Springs so if there was a fire, you know, out there, well, they would, I would work the relay radio because we didn't have all of that. So it's like Tennessee City would relay me, I would relay to the next person. And so we would do all of that little relay to get assets to wherever the fire was.
0: So really, like, his job was to go up in the fire tower and look for smoke occasionally?
1: Yes, and you were limited. You couldn't leave during fire season. You had to make sure that there was someone who, who was covering for that because
0: was it 24 7 is it
1: pretty much i mean he did not have to stay up there right he, he there were periods of time high high fire season you had to be there you know so you literally were up there just looking around for for fire <laughs> so um yeah that was that was there but he fell off of the back of a fire truck and broke his wrist so that led us to our next journey <laughs> <laughs> So, um, we had decided to sell the house that we had been renting out in Oakland. We needed to do that. But if you were in the fire section in the forestry division, you had to live on site with the the property that was there. And so, here we were with a house that we'd sold, and we had to reinvest that money. So... Really, what that meant was that we wanted to buy another house, plus the house we were living in was way tight. We had two other family members that were living with us at the time, so there were six of us in this little little 1,000-square-foot house. Fine. So we decided that we were going to buy a house over on Highway 70, which we did. But in between, before this happened, there's some things, life events that happened that I should share with you um in the first year that we moved here and we moved here in 85 so in 86 Darryl had two major surgeries that year he had an appendectomy that almost ruptured and then later in that year he picked up a he had bites on his legs and he picked up a germ which they were not able to identify and had major hip surgery he had 6 weeks of intravenous iv at home mm-hmm um how old was he he was in the seventh grade yeah so two two major surgeries that year so that was that last one was very very serious um so that was kind of traumatic and then in 1987 our niece was murdered and that just undid us all she was 17 and um So that was not good. And then... No, not good. Not good. (laughs) Debbie, you're the kingdom understatement today. Not good. Not good. Um, And then in 88, uh, there was a lot that was going on with my father and my sister was... Half-sister came back and she was living with us. And so all of this drama was going on during this period of time. The same time we're talking about buying a house. So we decided to go ahead and make that transition and and buy that house. And so then Earl went to work for the Department of Corrections. So he transferred within the state to the Department of Corrections. So there's almost always an opening in the Department of Corrections. (laughs) Why is that, Debbie? (laughs) So um, over the course of that career, I think he worked at every prison in the land of the prisons over there. I think he took a Tour at every one of
0: them. And that's where he did the fire inspecting, fire marshaling, fire.
1: He well, yes, he he did. Um, he he started out in maintenance at the women's prison. He worked there. He worked at the reception center. He worked at Special Needs. He worked at River Bend, and then as he took different positions, he he did um, do inspections, you know, for other prisons, and also was fire and safety at those institutions as well. But that was an adjustment, you know. Yeah. Uh, getting getting used to that and um, and what that entailed. He was on call a lot. Um And then, by this time, the time we made that transition, um, Daryl finished out high school and was ready to go to um, Middle Tennessee State uh, College. And David became active in the band. and we were gone at band competitions a lot. And so from a spiritual perspective, we fit God in as best we could with our busy life, which is not always a good plan.
0: (laughs) It seems like in those moments, that means there's not a lot of places that he seems to fit.
1: That's right. So, you know, we started down that descent, and and even though he was always there and we we, we tried to attend and stuff, we just... Did not connect into a congregation in the same way that we had when we came from Oakland.
0: When you're in Oakland, you are in, and it was part of your life. Exactly. Uh, but in those intervening years, you know, it was an extra. It was.
1: Well, we, I mean, we participated where we could, um, and we met lovely people that we still are friends with today. Um, but when, when I say we didn't connect with that congregation, maybe that was just, you know, the bigger thing is, is that we were not as connected with God, so we didn't connect with the congregation. However you want to frame it, yeah. I mean, it was not what it should have been. And
0: people don't realize sometimes church, um, there's so much about church that's fit and and personality and the right and And some of that's you, and some of that's them, and what percentage is what. I mean it changes all the time.
1: It does, and so many of It's funny how one thing affects another. So if you are in a congregation where several people are family, it's hard to break into those to those relationships. It's not anybody's fault. They're it just Yeah, it just is what it is. And if you're me, Who's always been an introverted type person, anyway? Then you're not banging on the doors. You're just going on your own, your own way. You just tend to isolate because
0: it's really easy for you to come in and just check the box and leave.
1: Right. So that was going on. Um, I was fortunate to have a job where, when the boys were in their teenage years, that I was still in the area and could check on them. But then that's when I ended up having to. I was laid off from that job because of some issues that were going on within the company, and I had to start working in Nashville. So that was a whole different thing because now I have a commute.
0: Yeah. Oh boy.
1: Um. So I I went to I worked in two different places, um, and the second place. I, I was working as a bookkeeper in an accounting department for there, and one of the um, owners asked me to do something that I felt like was not right in terms of the books. And so I told him that I wasn't going to do that. And he said, well, if you can't do that, if you can't do what I tell you to do, then you just need to go. You just need to be gone from here. So I said, okay but I need to draw unemployment. You're not gonna fire me. You lay me off." And so he agreed to do that. So that gave me 10 weeks at home that I was drawing unemployment, looking for other work, but it didn't really happen for me. But the God thing in all of this is, is that my stepfather was um, terminally ill with lung cancer and was in just imminent time of passing. And I was able to take those 10 weeks and go and stay with my mother and help take care of him in his last days. It turned
0: into a real blessing.
1: And it turned into a real blessing. So so not only was I grateful for that time and grateful to be able to make amends with him and grateful to help my mother and my sister, um, I... Had was communicating his passing to a friend of mine from Oakland who knew them. Well, she in turn went to my former employer where I had worked at Rincan and told him that I had been unsuccessful at finding a job. And he said, well, let me make some calls. And so he called someone in Nashville, um, the th- TPA, a third-party administrator of health care benefits, Um. And he was their, he, they were his administrator, and he said, "I this girl's worked for me, and she's done well, and if you've got anything, I'd appreciate you giving her a chance. And so they called me in for an interview, and he hired me on the spot. Oh, how cool. And I started the next Monday, and I worked for him for um, 12 years after that. It was a complete career change for me. And the owner of that company was a mentor to me. He um, he taught me so much, not only about that business, but on a personal level. He he taught me um, all kinds of things, just took an interest in, and really helped me, gave me some advantages, you know, that I probably wouldn't have had. And his wife was a lovely person. I, I, I think so much of her. And he became ill, and when he became ill, he sold the business, and then I was able to go to another business in the same type of industry, which also um, was a blessing to me. So I guess what I'm saying is, is those things, sometimes we think that are, are, what else is it going to be? What else is going to fall in my lap? Can really just be the working of God to Lead you to your next
0: You know, the domino of I'm getting let go for having integrity is, I mean, it, it's heavy. You feel like, God, why are you letting this happen? Mm-hmm. But then this lets you be there for a dying family member. It led you to your next job. It led you to a new career. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I hear you say that I, I just love about you, Debbie, <laughs> is uh, there's a lot of stories that you could have looked at two or three different ways. Um, but when you've had the choice at each junction, you have chosen to look at the stories instead of saying, why me? You've seen how God brought something good through them. And that's an intentional decision. Um, I think that decision brings you joy and brings you peace. You were telling me earlier about a a Bible verse you camp out on. (laughs) Um, I I think maybe that has something to do with this.
1: this Philippians 4, 6 through 8 has just been a life mantra for me. I can remember during stressful times of my life that I literally walked around just reciting it like a mantra. Do not be anxious, you know, just, it was just, I lived it. Um, It will always be special to me, you know, for that because that really did. It helped me to learn that when I start down a path in my thought process, I could I don't know how to swim, so I have a fear of of water. I could <laughs> I can go over a bridge and envision myself going off of the bridge and into the water, can't get out of my car and dying from the point that I entered the bridge to the time I leave the bridge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I realized through that verse that you can pull yourself back from that. You know, I mean, he he gives us the recipe. Whatever's good, whatever's pure, whatever's this. He gives you the recipe for that. Think on these things. And you can be in the midst of all of life and pull yourself back by just saying, this is not healthy thinking for me. And pull yourself back into a right place.
0: We have the power to think about our thinking and to change our thinking.
1: mm -hmm. So... That's that's certainly something that's been of help to me, immeasurable help. Um, So then I went to work for Cowan, and those were good years. I worked uh, 14 years there and went into a management position. It was very, very stressful. It was also, not only was it management, but it was compliance. It was right in the heart of... HIPAA and COBRA and um, the Affordable Care Act and all of these compliance issues that were not only on an individual basis but that plans had to be had to be rewritten to put them in compliance with these aspects. It was very. Um, it had complexities that were very stressful because there were severe consequences if you did not comply appropriately. Right. And not that it was all on me, because it wasn't, but the execution of these plans were were under my purview. Yes. Um, so during that time, um, y- with my commute to Brentwood and to Cool Springs, I was away from home 50, 55 hours a week, not to mention the fact that... Um, Sometimes I had to bring work home with me. Uh, my mother developed cancer and she was with me for cancer treatments some of the time. She later developed dementia and uh, she also was there with me uh, part of the time for that. And Earl started a new job um, with the same with still with the state, but left um, there and went to, uh, commerce and insurance and became a fire marshal you know through there so I had a stressful job we had my mother who was there you know he was learning a new job and trying to have God as a priority just was not there there literally was you know if I got home at 6 20 I didn't want to get in the car at 6 30 after having driven an hour and 15 minutes to make it to Wednesday night service just didn't want to do that yeah and you know you get home and then it's like go to bed so you can get up and do it again the next day. Now not new to me that happens to everybody you know or many people have that to deal with. Um, I look back on that and I think what could I have done differently? How could I have what, what could I have done? And you know it's like I did studies I did listen to to uh, books and sermons and what have you and tried to stay connected but it was not it was not what it needed to be it just wasn't and part of the reason is that there just wasn't enough time and so you you examine yourself and you think well okay I have a choice well what's my choice well quit my job Or what? (laughs) And it's a hard place to find yourself in. Yeah. You know, and it takes its toll on your relationships. Absolutely. There's no energy.
0: If you're stressed 24-7, that comes out somewhere, and it's going to come out at home.
1: You know, so being there for one another, that gets a backseat to everything else, too. So... You know, to say that it doesn't take a toll on your marriage, yes, it does. You know, so then sometimes you get a wake-up call.
0: <laughs> I don't like wake-up calls. You
1: know, I can remember one night, um, I, I always felt like God, and this may seem strange to people or, or not, I don't know, but I always feel like God would talk to me or make things clear to me. In sleep and I guess it was because that was the only time that I, that I was calm enough to hear it. but I clearly clearly remember still to this day one night when I I heard this voice as clearly as I could hear yours saying why do you resist and that's all there was to it was that but how much is in that statement why do you resist
0: and isn't that what he said to Saul on the Damascus Road is it? <laughs> well, why do you, The King James, I think, is why do, the, why dost thou kick against the goads? But I, I think it's an idiom that means the same. Why do you resist? Why? And
1: I think that, you know, I mean, I clearly think that that's, that he was saying that to me, you know, that you need to pay attention. <laughs> and either you pay attention because he said that or he gets your attention in some other way and he did that. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I learned that I had to make certain things priority. You know, so that we moved to White Bluff. My mother died in 2014 and that year, that fall after she died, she died in June, that fall we decided to put the house up for sale and move to White Bluff, which we did. Um, I worked another year, Earl left the state in August, and I worked through the end of the year. I'd planned to work more than that, but as God would have it, <laughs> the company that I'd been with and loved was sold to a high, um, to an international company. And we were told we were going to have to sign on for non competes, and everything from this nice, warm, family oriented business was changing. To fit this big, corporate. this big corporate, and I thought this is just not for me, yeah, just not for me, and so I went on social security early, and went ahead and retired, and um, that was life changing. I, I think of many mornings. I I typically pray in a prayer journal. I just journal. That works better for me. I take notes at sermons and in class because it keeps me focused. I rarely go back and read those, either, but it helps me internalize what's being said. And so, you know, having the time to spend in those journals and go back and look at my life and examine it, um has been such a blessing one that i do not take for granted to be able to have that time um i wish i'd had it sooner yeah. but i i don't know how i would have made that happen
0: yeah where would it fit
1: um you know i mean i look back our boys married 9 months apart you know so it was just there you, Grandchildren, it's just all of those things that happen during that period of time. And it's, it just gets, you find yourself too busy yeah. and you can't get off of the merry-go-round. I wanted to, I just didn't know how to. And um,
0: I think one of the biggest spiritual obstacles pe- people face simply is just that little four-letter word, time. Time. And I don't know. I think sometimes church requires, I, I'm going to get fired for this. Too much time and we actually make the problem worse for people. You know, uh, at a stage in life where you don't have any time, you need more of it. Um, but if we could figure out how to how to get connected in those busy stages of life. Um, and, and full disclosure, one of the reasons that I wanted us to do this podcast, not, not you and me in particular, is um, I wanted us to try to create something that our busy people would have a chance of interacting with on their own time. And that's, that's the joy of a podcast because probably both of our listeners uh, are listening uh, to this in the car while they're driving to Nashville or while they're getting groceries or while they're taking a walk in the park. And so, you know, we're trying to find things that fit. I wish we need to do some creative thinking about that problem because that's the most common problem I hear people talk about in their spirituality.
1: Well, two things about Burns that one thing I was so impressed with is the Wednesday night meal. You know, when I think about me in my life, had had I come in at 6.20 from work and realized I didn't have to cook and then go to service, it would have made such a difference for me. It really would. That is a huge service for people. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. You know, so <laughs> kudos to to that. That's it's a big deal. It really much bigger than the obvious. Yeah. You know, so I think that's a wonderful thing. Um And in my journaling, you know, that I have. I Obviously, I've, I've got a, a weight issue. And so I realized after having tried myriad things, different types of things that I have to get down to the root cause and so I started out writing at the end of my prayer journal every day change me from the inside out and that's was my impetus for starting that and then and then I realized how much he changed me from the inside out how much growth that I had and not in the ways that I expected Um. So that's that's been such a blessing. And then when we were we first visited the Burns Church and I walked in and I sat down and I it's one of your circles that was up on the wall that was talking about change from the inside out. And I thought, then this is the place for me. It's like this okay, that's my sign. (laughs) Inside out.
0: Literally, here is
1: the sign. Here is the sign. You know. Um because that is where growth comes from. And one of the things I read, actually just this morning, I wanted to um, to mention, is it, it said the hurts of life can grow us and help us to comfort others. And the hurts will come to an end. You know, they don't, they're not as acute as they are in the moments. And so I look back on my life and I think, of all the ins and outs, the things that are there, and I think they made me who I am for for better or worse, they made me who I am and if I look at myself and I say, "Do I need to make improvements emphatically? Yes, do I need more growth emphatically yes, God's not through with me yet yeah um. But is there someone else that I look at and say, I want to be that person over being myself? No. No. And so I realized then that I have a purpose. God made only one of me to be what I am. And I need to celebrate that and not look back and, and think, well, you know, this was not the way you really wanted it, <laughs> you know. Because who knows the right and wrong of it? Only sure he I mean, does, hey, Debbie.
0: <laughs> uh, the world is a better place. Thank, Thank you for Debbie Martin being part of it. And you're so kind. Are there any stories you wanted to tell that we didn't make it to?
1: Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not really. Okay. I mean there mm-hmm. there are st- the stories that are are there, but you know. Every, Everybody has things that they go through. And I think realizing that you're not y- unique, you know, some people have much worse stories than I do. Um, overall, I've had a good life.
0: Well, I'm so glad.
1: I've had a good life.
0: So you gave me an idea about how to close our time. Right. Um, how much of that that mantra from Philippians 40 still have in your head? Mm-hmm.
1: Be anxious for nothing, but through everything, through supplication and with prayers, make your requests known to God with thanksgiving, and the peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and mind. Through
0: Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us, and I hope that you guys will uh, enjoy this as much as I did, and I hope that you'll come back next time. Uh, Who's our next guest? Beats me. We'll find (laughs) out. When's our next show? Beats me. We're making this up as we go. Uh, but I sure enjoyed our time together today, and I look forward to seeing you again.